I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness. You get stronger as you become more open. If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. This is the first time that I've told aloud. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. Listening to other people's stories, you realize, wow, these people are all experiencing the same thing that we are. You are not the only one. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we continue our series on depression in the workplace. According to a recent study, the cost of depression at work is $210.5 million a year, which is up over 20% since 2005. Interestingly, the majority of this expense is not the cost of the direct medical care, the treatment of depression, but it actually comes in the form of lost productivity, like missed work and disability. Just to give you another sense of this, nearly 10% of all adults will experience depression, and still about half don't actually get treatment for it, partly because people are afraid to talk about it or else they don't know how or where to get help. With me today is Claire Miller, the director of the Partnership for Workplace Mental Health, a program for employers at the American Psychiatric Association Foundation. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Claire. Thank you so much. So what do you actually do as the director of the Partnership for Workplace Mental Health? What what does your role include? Basically, we try to collaborate and be helpful to employers uh, in the area of mental health. And we really do three main things. One, we talk with employers about why they should care about this and really put in front of them, just like some of the statistics you just referenced. The second thing we do is sort of get out of the way and identify what companies are actually doing. And then we tell those stories. So it's not about APA wagging its finger at an employer, but rather it's really about employers sharing with one another about what's working and telling those very practical examples of what companies can do. And then the last thing that we do is actually give them some tools and resources that they can actually use to help to create environments where people feel that it's it's safe to actually reach out and get help. So much of what I think can contribute to reducing stigma about something like depression is when individuals are prepared to come forward. And I know that you, too, have been working in this field for a long time. I wonder if you could tell me about how this came to be such a dear subject for you. Yeah, I think I recognized the power of the employer very early on. Um, And that goes to my very personal experience. I have had mental health issues probably since I was, you know, quite young. I used to complain about having stomach aches, for example, when I was a very small child and went to the pediatrician and the nurse's office all the time with, you know, what I thought were stomach aches, which likely were really untreated anxiety issues. But suffice it to say, you know, throughout the years, I would reach out for help and I would resist getting on medication. I thought that getting on medication meant that you were kind of throwing in the towel, that you were giving up, that you were trying to take the easy way out, that you weren't really willing to be disciplined and sort of figure this out on your own. And finally, it wasn't until I was working 
And someone approached me, a colleague at work, not my supervisor, but a colleague, and she said, you know, you really should think about getting help. I thought I had been, you know, kind of passing, if you will, and presenting myself as, you know, kind of a regular professional and, you know, crying quietly (laughs) uh, with the door closed when when I needed to or, you know, going home at the end of the day and sort of collapsing um, from exhaustion. I thought I was sort of, you know, holding it together at work, but she recognized that I was not doing well and reached out to me and said, you know, you really should think about getting help. And for me, it was a real wake up call. And in some ways it was financially driven. I thought, oh my goodness, it's one thing for me to sort of personally not be doing well, but this could actually affect my livelihood. I better get this taken care of. And long story, not very short, but (laughs) long story short, I finally uh, got into treatment, got prescribed medication, had a really a wonderful experience with a psychiatrist actually who helped uh, figure out the best treatment for me. And it it radically changed my life. It was, um, you know, a complete 180 in terms of how I felt. I'm so glad. You know, I wonder when she approached you and said you should really get help, what was that like for you to find out that your efforts to hide it were not working? You know, I think, um, you know, as I think about it, this wasn't the first time that someone had approached me. Um, And, you know, certainly, you know, therapists, others suggested medication, uh, you know, throughout the years. I remember one time a friend of my mom who uh, was a nurse practitioner, suggested to my mother, who then suggested to me that I should get on medication. And I had a really, really negative reaction. And part of it was that I was in the middle of really struggling when that happened. I think that this individual um, picked a time when I was receptive to it. I wasn't in crisis, like in the moment. She took me aside quietly. It was very calm. It was. It came out of a very clear place of concern. It was very gentle. And did she ever tell you what it was that had made her realize? Like, were there things that you, I, I can imagine feeling very self-conscious, like, oh my God, what? how was I giving it away? Right. Did she ever tell you what, how she knew that you were suffering? She noticed that I would get teary-eyed um, a lot <laughs> about uh, really kind of insignificant kinds of triggers, which was my experience. I would always be sort of kicking myself, like, why am I having this ridiculous reaction to this thing that I know intellectually is not a big deal? Um, so she noted that. And I think she could probably see that I was sort of like walking around in a fog a bit and just spoke to that. So you describe a struggle around the question of whether to take medicine, which is, I think, almost universal in anyone I've ever worked with clinically, mm-hmm. that sort of taking antidepressants is such a difficult, it feels to some like an admission of defeat. You know, I almost hear that you had this really sort of fierce determination, like I should just discipline myself, I should do it myself. There's this kind of very almost American cultural, pick yourself up by your bootstrap philosophy, mm-hmm. sort of like... That you shouldn't use these medicines like a crutch. Like we have such a different view of antidepressants than we do of an asthma inhaler, say, or, you know, a medicine for diabetes. And how has your own, you know, you know the struggle from the inside. How has that helped you uh, advise businesses about helping people get treatment? Because you know in, internally the, the resistance to that. Has it changed the kind of suggestions that you make? 
I think one thing that I'm cognizant of is that I'm always thinking about the fact that whoever I'm talking to could have experience, personal experience with this very thing, or it could be in their family. Uh, it likely is, you know, connected in some way personally uh, to them, just given the sheer prevalence of the issue. So I think that's one thing is that, you know, I recognize that we often need to talk about this issue in terms of, you know, statistics and prevalence and economic impact and lost productivity. But I think uh, I try anyway to lead with, you know, the personal experience that what we're talking about here is people who are not doing well from a health perspective that could so easily be helped. It's interesting to hear you because I think about the anti-stigma approaches that I've heard of and I've kind of loosely categorized them into kind of four prongs, like one, which is kind of the mainstream one that's been going on the most, which is, you know, depression is a biological illness. There doesn't need to be any stigma. It's just an illness like any other. And we've worked hard at that. And people's understanding that depression is a neurobiological illness is going up. But I would say it hasn't completely solved it. And so then I spoke with someone at the beginning of this series who works at L.L. Bean in the employee assistance program there. And they've really shifted their anti-stigma approach to now focusing on the value of getting help that sort of like life gets everyone, you know, we all need the help at some point kind of thing. So destigmatizing that. But there are two other approaches that I'm curious to ask you what you think about. One is the approach that you kind of just mentioned, which is emphasizing how effective treatment is. Like what I hear for you is like you finally got on medicine and it changed your life. Like the world got better. And, I, you know, some of the recent statistics are approximately 80 percent of individuals with depression will recover fully. Um, 86 percent of employees who are treated for depression report improved work performance and they report high levels of work satisfaction. So it's like just emphasizing you know, this good thing that you can have. And I'm curious, do, are companies experimenting with that more? Um, I think so, but I think we could be doing a lot more with that. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of a, a few things. Uh, one is that the research about stigma shows that the most effective thing that you can do is have personal contact with an individual who has an experience of mental health issues so that it's not this abstract thing. It's something that you find out, you know, Sally has. And uh, I think inherent in, in that is when you find out about Sally or when you realize that this neighbor or colleague that you've known and, and loved for years has an, an issue, it's not this abstract sort of scary you know, quote, crazy person, you know, it's Sally and everything that comes along with Sally and the fact that she's, you know, a, a nice, helpful colleague. And and so I think that that's part of it is that we need to tell more stories. We need to talk about our own experiences. And, you know, that can be tough to do. I don't always do that, actually. I, I have, you know, withheld this uh, information in specific situations where you might not feel comfortable um, with mm -hmm. it. So I, I think there's a hesitation to sometimes talk about a mental health issue if you're doing well, because then you will be sort of revealing this thing unnecessarily. Right. Uh, you know, and because of that, we often don't hear stories of people who are successfully living with the illness. You know, I have asthma and I have depression and I take medication for both of those and I'm doing great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we don't hear that. 
we hear about the awful side of it. And often, you know, I think that contributes to this like mystery of what actually happens in treatment. That is such a great point, I think, because, you know, the fourth approach to reducing stigma that I was going to talk about, which is in some ways a premise of this show, the idea that if you hear someone talk about suffering, it opens your heart. I mean, that that if we if we help people really get a little window into what that experience is like, then it tends to evoke compassion. Mm-hmm. Well, that's my hope. And yet listening to you, I think, well, there's, it's got to be sort of somehow multi-pronged because I think there's a tremendous value to being moved by someone suffering in a way that really opens your heart. But but hearing you say, you know what, I've got depression, I'm taking medicine, I'm doing great. Like, there's a way that that is just so awesome. <laughs> and I almost never hear that. I can't believe how right. often I never, it's so rare to hear someone say that. Right. Well, you know, I, I think about that moment. I mean, I will never forget the feeling when I finally got on medication. And like, I remember walking down the street one time and it, I think it happened to be springtime. Like when, when things, you know, I, I, again, I had this beautiful experience where, you know, I got on the right medication and, you know, my doctor titrated me up slowly and had lots of good follow-up and I was able to take the time off from my job for appointments. And, but anyway, I remember when like the medication started working and I was walking down the street and I remember looking up and being like, the sky is blue. Like, has the sky always been blue like that? Like when people talk about the sky being blue, is this what they mean? I mean, literally colors in the world seemed more vibrant to me. And, you know, on the one hand, it was like, this is absolutely incredible. And on the other hand, you know, a real sense of sadness, like, God, I waited so long. Like I could have felt like this in high school. You know, I could have felt like this, you know, for years. Um, And, you know, but I will never forget that feeling. And I do love telling people about that because I hope people don't wait too long or never, never get help. Yeah, I remember in medical school, we were always taught that diabetes usually takes about 10 years to be identified because people don't get a fasting blood sugar checked. And then diabetes, you know, if if that goes undetected for 10 years, people have a risk of vision problems or problems with their feet and so on. And, um, but we were never told, I read the statistic in something you sent to me that it can take 10 years for someone to get, uh, to go to treatment for, for some kind of mental health problem, whether it's depression or substance abuse or other mental illness problems. It was like, wow, it, it was striking even to me that in medical school, you know, there's this real focus on diabetes and the consequences of not getting into treatment earlier, but it's really quite equivalent for depression. That was a new thought for me. You know, I think about people finally kind of speaking up at at an appointment and whatever kind of health appointment that is. Maybe it's with the primary care physician, you know, maybe it's at your OBGYN, wherever you're, you're going, you know, they've finally talked about it. What if they then don't get good care? What a awful lost opportunity. That, you know, that pains me so much. When I help someone go to see a therapist for the first time and they go see that person and, the, and they have a terrible experience, it's devastating because yeah. yeah. it feels like it's such a, it'll set them back for years before they're willing to try again. It's just so discouraging. Yeah. Well, you know, one really fabulous thing that is quite recent is that um, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, came out with a recommendation that people, everyone should be screened. Uh, First, they said a 
um, you know, adults and uh, women that are pregnant. Uh, and now, and then I think, you know, a few days later came out and talked about the need for teens to get screened for depression. Yes, I just saw that. We're talking like last week, right? Yeah. Very, yeah. very recent. And so that screen, um, you know, maybe you could just describe, I'm, I'm assuming they're going to use the PHQ-9 or something like that. Why don't you say what a, what a screen for depression might look like? Sure. So, you know, with screening, screening tools are incredibly useful. They're not the same as, um, you know, they're not, they're not going to create a diagnosis. Uh, you really need to have an evaluation, as you know, Anne, uh, by a trained clinician in order to, to get a diagnosis. But a screening tool can be a really useful tool, and they're often very quick. One of the most popular is called a PHQ-9, which stands for the Patient Health Questionnaire. And it basically asks people, you know, a series of nine questions that look at some of the key symptoms associated with uh, depression to get a sense of, of whether or not there is concern and maybe um, whether or not there's a reason to pursue additional line of inquiry in terms of getting a, a full evaluation. So, you know, any individual right now can go online and type in, you know, PHQ-9 and could get access to this free tool that um, might give them a sense of, of whether or not they should, you know, explore this. I think we'll put a link to that on the website with this podcast okay. so that people can get, get that easily from our site. The other thing that I think that a lot of people don't know about depression is how linked it is to other physical illnesses both that people with depression are much more likely to have coronary artery disease, more likely to have a stroke, more at risk for having a heart attack, but also even in the absence of something so serious, experience a lot more physical pain, which of course from an employer standpoint means that they may be out of work with physical aches and pains as well. And I'm curious, do you do a lot of education of employers about that relationship as well? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's one of the ways I think we're able to reach employers who maybe don't start out really kind of appreciating the impact of depression or other mental health issues is we talk about the the fact that there is this high comorbidity between mental health issues and physical you know, medical illnesses. And so, you know, something that I've said is, you know, even if you don't care about depression, if you are already focused on asthma or, you know, heart health, you're not going to be able to adequately truly address those issues if you're not also thinking about the co-occurring mental health issue. You know, it opens up sort of a whole new set of opportunities to educate. So if you're doing something in the workplace about, you know, exercise or heart health, you could also educate people about the fact that these things frequently happen together and that you should also make sure that you're paying attention to your mental health. I know within primary care clinics now, there's a large move to offer what they call integrated care, where a psychiatrist is part of that group and in the same office space. And so it also destigmatizes going to see the psychiatrist and is, you know, dovetailed with their work on their heart or their asthma or whatever it is. I want to ask you something even more specific now. I understand that a recent study suggested that the industries that have the highest rates of depression tend to be the ones that have frequent or difficult interaction with clients and high levels of stress along with low levels of physical activity. If I was running a business like that, what are the recommendations that you would make to me about how to help my employees? What always comes to mind when I hear about specific industries is call centers, right? And call centers are part of so many different kinds of industries, you know, our banking industry, utilities. And this is one that 
typically has uh, concerns around lots of different healthcare issues, um, but also, and in particular, mental health. And I'll tell a story that I think helps to kind of um, illustrate both the challenge and the opportunity. Um, there's a, uh, a very large bank that has, of course, you know, a call centers. And for, for those of you who don't know, you know, those jobs, you know, in and of themselves start out really tough, right? You're sitting at your desk. You can't leave your desk. You're on one call after another. There is typically, as soon as you hang up one call, there's a light blinking for you to pick up the next one. Um, you're encouraged to resolve the issues quickly and, you know, keep your volume up. Uh, you're typically not paid super well. You know, you're certainly, you're not able to move around, et cetera. Very low ability to control, you know, your work and your day and how you decide to spend your time, you know, as compared to other professions where, you know, like I was writing something earlier today and then I took a minute and got a cup of water and it helped me like think through, you know, what I was working on. But I had that freedom to decide that I was going to get up, you know, and, and these jobs typically don't have that. Right. So the job itself is like really, really tough. And then you add on to that the fact that you're talking to people that are basically mad at you or mad at the company about various things. That's when you inevitably end up calling the call centers. So anyway, what this one particular bank did was they were talking with the managers of the call centers about the fact that anxiety and stress tends to be very high among their employees. And so what they did was they they pulled together these managers and did training about uh, mental health issues and anxiety. And they played some of the phone calls that their employees would face. And, you know, the, the people are getting absolutely reamed out, you know, cursed at by customers. And it's, you know, a miserable experience. And then they hear their employee has maintained professionalism during that, attempt to resolve the issue. Maybe they did resolve the issue, whatever the case may be. And then, you know, explain to them, okay, so right after that call, that person had to take another one. And so they worked with the um, the managers to kind of begin to experience some of that. They also actually modeled like creating a stressful experience. So the there was some sort of activity where they were asked to fill out a piece of paper and then the person running the session, you know, kind of tried to hurry them up and started distracting them by asking <laughs> them other questions. And, uh. and yeah. so anyway, they worked with this company and they were able to, after a lot of back and forth, figure out ways where if someone has a really awful call, they can take a minute and get up and regroup and walk around before taking the other call. It seems like a really minor thing, but it actually was a huge endeavor to try to make that very, what seems like easy fix happen. Because, you know, the manager is like, well, we, you know, we have to answer to our managers who expect XYZ volume. And, you know, so part of it is really looking at the way in which the job is structured. No kidding. I mean, and part of it seems to me, the big intervention there was educating the managers who somehow weren't aware of this. Because yeah, I mean, wouldn't you imagine that the manager would be aware of that? Right, right. Well, I think it's, you know, the manager is obviously knows what the what folks are doing, but to sort of have to sit there in yeah. a room looking at your other managers hear these terrible calls, you know, something about that makes it much more real, I think. Yeah, it seemed, actually, it was an exercise in fostering empathy yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> for, their, for their employees. Yeah, so so I think what we do know is that having some control 
even if it's just the control to get up and walk for one whole minute, which seems tiny, but it gives a person such a better feeling of agency and less powerlessness. Yeah, I think it also, uh, one of the things that it does for me is help me understand how difficult it is for companies to change and to do things. And that, you know, even if, and, and that you have to help individuals within the workplace, give them some of the tools to do that, right? Because, you know, everyone in that room likely understood the value in someone getting a minute after a tough call to take a break before they have to take the next call. Um, but to get the system to be able to accommodate that and what that took, um, I think, you know, explains why, you know, this this work can take a long time. Um, but also, you know, the fact that we're all just doing the best we can, you know, and, and you know, employers aren't inherently evil and, and managers often are wanting to do the right thing, but they need really help and support to, to figure out the best way to do that. Yes. One last question in closing, Claire, which is I recently read a study. It was a big study involving over 20,000 American adults that was looking at rates of depression among women compared to men, because it's long been known that more women tend to suffer from depression than men. And there are lots of theories on why that is. But in this study, it was really intriguing. It was something I'd never seen before. They found that when women had lower income than their male counterparts, their odds of having depression were two and a half times higher. But if you actually looked at women who were making the same amount as their male counterparts, their rates of depression were equal to the men. Wow. Isn't that wild? I, I, it's really provocative and basically suggesting that depression in women, at least some of it, may be due to either just like the significant financial stress about not being paid well for their work and or the perception of being subordinate, disrespected, not treated as well, and that those things have real consequences. And I'm curious, as do you ever hear employers talking about that, looking at that? Is that something that's on people's screen? You know, it falling along gender lines, I feel like is something that employers haven't quite tackled that and tied that to mental health. But I will say that I think there's kind of a an appreciation for the fact that lower wage workers in general, you know, have a tougher go of it and have more vulnerabilities to mental health issues in part just because of all of the other challenges that are happening in their lives. And so, you know, one example is a company that began working on mental health issues, but then they quickly uncovered that what folks were struggling with were real, just basic psychosocial skills, um, just life challenges, you know, financial issues. One individual, she was working with an employee and the employee was complaining about sleep challenges. And, you know, I think she was thinking about, okay, you know, maybe this is a medical condition. Well, come to find out the woman was not sleeping on a bed. She did not have a bed. She was sleeping on the floor of her house. She was a lower wage worker. She had just moved there. She did not have a bed. The company then actually bought this woman a bed, but like it turned out, you know, this was not some tricky clinical issue. The woman just lacked basic shelter, essentially. You know, they, um, we used to have to do house calls in med school for one rotation. And it was so eye-opening to see where someone was living because you completely don't appreciate that in an sure. office visit. And so much of what someone's struggling with can can be seen clearly once you, when you're in their home. Yeah. And it's really missed in medicine now, too. Absolutely. 
Claire, we're going to have to stop. I'm so sorry because I feel like you're, you have so many stories and interesting um, resources. I want to ask you to, to close. We try to always end with a few resources for people, and you've mentioned the PHQ-9 screening tool, which we'll have on our website. But I wonder if I was an employer, how could I find out? I know that you've worked with companies who've created videos and talks and all these different ways to reduce depression at work. How could I get access to those? We encourage and invite employers to make use of all of the things that we offer them. We offer all of our tools and resources for free to employers, and they can access everything at workplacementalhealth.org. And in particular, I draw attention to two particular resources. One is called Right Direction, and it's a free educational campaign that a company can implement focused on depression. And the other one is called ICU. And it's a video-based educational program that an employer can use to teach employees how to recognize warning signs and support and connect with their fellow uh, employees at the workplace. That sounds fantastic. So that's workplacementalhealth.org. Yes. Claire Miller, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. This has really been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's been it's been wonderful. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the shows in this series on depression in the workplace. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.